Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Happy Friday. I am Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. This week on the show, we talked about uh, kudzu. <laughs> I said that quietly, I feel like, for some reason. We talked about the reverence kudzu. of kudzu. It, <laughs> so, one of the things that I do on a regular basis, I have this giant collection of RSS feeds from all of these places that publish articles that are related to history and archaeology in some way. And I go through them regularly to uh, bookmark stuff that might make an appearance in a forthcoming Unearthed episode. Um, And some of the places that publish these various articles don't strictly publish about archaeology and history. And so there will be articles that are uh, not exactly in the same umbrella. And one of those recently was Uh, about the discovery of a fossil of a plant that dinosaurs had eaten. And the headline for this article had described it as dinosaur food. And so my mind kind of went, hey, Self, do you remember when you were a child and you thought that kudzu was dinosaur food because you could imagine a big old brontosaurus just, like, eating the kudzu out of the top of a tree? (laughs) Uh, And that pretty quickly went to, we should do a podcast about kudzu because I really want to find out how much of uh, my incredibly limited understanding of how we got so much kudzu is actually true. (laughs) See, you grew up in the South. I moved to the South when I was nine from the Pacific Northwest. And I similarly, the way people described it was like, it's coming for you. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like a a a Stephen King novel that the kudzu will kill us all if we don't monitor it at all times. Yeah, don't sleep with your windows open because the kudzu vine might come in while you're sleeping and strangle you. Let yeah. me tell you, in my experience, privet is way worse. But um, that's... <laughs> yeah, I um, I had a fight with some Asiatic bittersweet over the weekend that um, is uh, growing around our house. And um, this is year three of trying to get rid of the bittersweet. It's, it's not great. Um, a lot of the other invasive plants that we mentioned in the episode are plants that I've heard of before. Um, Some of them specifically, I've heard about how much damage they're doing in particular ecosystems where they have really taken off and thrived. I did not really realize how many of them are just such a much bigger problem than kudzu is, covering just a lot more acreage and damaging a lot more other plants because, like, kudzu has become this shorthand for the invasive thing that is taking everything over. Yeah, yeah. I will say, and I was glad you mentioned goats at the end, because in my head, I just kept going like, get the goats, just get the, get the, the goats can do steep hills. They'll eat happily for a long time until you stop them. Yep. Goats. It seems like the easiest. And who doesn't love a goat? I mean, you can rent goats to come to your house and devour the things that you don't want to deal with. Yep. And a goat tender will come with them. You just get to stand there and watch goats. That's great. I've solved kudzu, you guys. No one else thought of this before. (laughs) Holly has the kudzu answer. Uh, Yeah, so, man, that James Dickey poem. uh, I feel like 80% of the articles that I read referenced that poem 
either referencing it or quoting from it. There was one honestly pretty pro-kudzu book that I read that included a lot of recipes for, you know, ways to cook with kudzu and craft instructions for things to make with kudzu. Uh, You know, generally presenting kudzu as a plant that has a lot of uses and that we should learn to live with and, uh, and learn from printed this entire poem at the beginning of it, you know, apparently with permission of either James Dickey or James, I guess James Dickey was still living when this book was printed. And the poem is not pro-kudzu in any way. The poem is very anti-kudzu. Kudzu is like a monstrous, foreboding kind of evil presence in this poem. And also I find the poem to be racist. It's got a lot of overtones about like, in invading Japanese people and invading immigrants and like I did not love it. I got very tired of hearing it. And I got to this point late in the day when I only had three or four articles left to go. And I was like, please, please, no more James Dickey. James Dickey, also the author of <laughs> Deliverance, a book that I feel like reinforced a lot of incredibly negative stereotypes about the South and about men. So I had just a lot of James Dickey frustration while working on this show. Safe to say, Tracy is not a James Dickey fan. Yeah. Safe to say. There are other Southern writers, (laughs) y'all. So many. Um, I only recently discovered uh, the use of arrowroot in cooking. So I didn't realize until, like I said, fairly recently in the last year and a half that kudzu had all of these fabulous cooking options that came with Mm -hmm. it. Now I'm like looking around the backyard going, where's some kudzu? Come here. Um, (laughs) Which is not wise. I had to get an app that takes pictures of, you take a picture of your plant and it goes, no, 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 don't eat that. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Um, You can also buy like kudzu powder um, at a lot of Asian markets and possibly that other is how I discovered also. it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I thought about making a little field trip to an Asian market um, and I did not I did not get around to that um, while working on this. Uh, some of the things that I had seen people make with kudzu because there's been kind of a kudzu renaissance in some ways. people trying to like sort of reclaim kudzu as a a thing that can really be a delicacy. And th- I saw some chefs that were working with, in kudzu, with kudzu in ways that seemed just really interesting and beautiful, even. Um, I came away, like, I think I said in the episode that when I was a kid, especially when it was green, I actually thought kudzu was kind of pretty. And I'd, uh, I came away from the episode more sympathetic to kudzu than I had been before. I don't think I ever went through a kudzu dislike period. I'm just, like many people, I think, that actually live in the South at this point. You're like, that's kudzu. Yeah. Got to deal with it or just let it be. <laughs> let, it, let it win. We um, we live in a, a cul-de-sac that's kind of at the bottom of two hills. And across the street from our cul-de-sac is a ravine. Mm-hmm coated in kudzu. Yeah. Um, Seems like a good spot for some kudzu. It's quite beautiful. We get a lot of rain, and the rain runoff always goes towards that ravine. Um, And it's also where a lot of feral cats live, so apparently cats love it as well. Mm -hmm. (laughs) In my head, they have like a Miyazaki-level cat kingdom developed in the kudzu over there. But um, that, I... I have always been curious, and I've never asked any of the, the people that live on that side of the 
thoroughfare if they're fighting with the kudzu or just sort of, you know, it's it's kind of naturally being beaten back by just them living and using that land in whatever way they use it. But uh, happy in the ravine forever. Yeah. Um, I remember there being this one patch of kudzu right by my elementary school when I was a child. And it was like the elementary school, the school uh, athletic fields where we all played kickball or whatever at recess. And then this kind of oddly shaped patch of woods that was adjacent, like between the road and the school property that had been taken over by kudzu. And I have not driven through there in some years at this point. Uh, So I looked on Google Street View and it doesn't appear that it's there anymore. So I wonder if someone made the effort to to get rid of it, or if I am misremembering where that stand of kudzu was that I remember driving past all the time in my childhood. Well, the good news is if someone got rid of it, probably its babies live on somewhere in the area. Somewhere else, yeah. <laughs> uh, One of the things we talked about this week was Harriet Quimby. Yep. Uh, who, as we mentioned, appeared in the in the show before, but just one part of four in an episode, and I was like, oh, there's so much good stuff about her life. She needs her own. Yeah, there are a few uh, a few prior hosts episodes that incorporate multiple people to look at some specific facet of something. Um, it's not exactly like the Six Impossible episodes series that we've done, but, you know, like that one is about four specific flights that were done by female aviators, and I think this is the second time that one of those aviators has then made another appearance on the show, uh, because one of them is also Jackie Cochran. Um, and I resisted doing a full episode on Jackie Cochran for a really long time because she had already been in that earlier thing, but that earlier thing really is, like, five minutes on her. Yeah, and uh, both Jackie Cochran and Harriet certainly worthy of more discussion than that. It, we talked about it some in the episode, but I really, like I said, I really did want to make sure we highlighted how much, like, she gets called an aviator all the time, but really journalism was driving the bus in Harriet's life. <laughs> that was that was the whole reason she even went to watch a plane flight demonstration for the first time was like, oh, I could write about that. Right. Um, you know, if she hadn't been a journalist, she would not have, have ended up there being captivated by all things new and exciting as she tended to be. I will say this, if you look at her articles she was not a brief writer. Like, she would write very lengthy, really well-written articles, but, like, they were they were not short. She tended to write long-form articles, one of which I, I stumbled across, and I didn't really use it as a source because it wasn't really germane to the, the story, but, like, she wrote this whole article at one point about the importance of starting art schools in the United States uh, and how we needed our own art tradition that was supported by a really strong and well-thought-out curriculum for people that were coming up and wanted to be artists and to celebrate the culture that we already had as a, a melting pot. And it was quite quite fun to read. Yeah, she also wrote a great article that I stumbled across about where she kind of turns the table on uh, gender roles in acting, where there were already so many articles about uh, starlets who were just, you know, lured by by the magic of potentially being famous and of being on screen. And she wrote one that's all about, like, young and up-and-coming actors. 
(laughs) And she kind of talks about them in the same language, which is pretty funny. It even says at the top of the article, I know what you're about to read you would normally think was about women, but it's about guys. (laughs) And it's just a very... You see how she was able to really ride that line of being a little bit cheeky and challenging her readers, but also being so charming and winsome in the way that she wrote that people were like, of course we should talk about this. Uh, She didn't seem to ever have a lot of backlash, even when she did write some pretty challenging articles, um, which is interesting and not something that gets talked about much at all. I will say this. I'm completely captivated by that purple satin jumpsuit. Yeah. Hello, future Halloween outfit. There are pictures (laughs) of it. It's darling. Yeah, it's one of those things where there are some descriptions you'll read of her, you know, kind of getting to the airfield, particularly if they were local to New York, and, you know, driving up in her car and getting out and just kind of looking like this sort of unusual, completely original fashion plate and and being... It it reminded me a little bit of when we talked about Katie Sandwina, who was this woman Mm. who was the opposite of diminutive. You know, she was a a tall woman and very strong, but also always like dressed to the nines and her nails were always done. And it's kind of like that. Like, here's a woman who is challenging everything you think about what a woman's role is. But she also knows how to stay within people's perceptions of what a woman should be just enough that she didn't make anybody angry about it. And there was a level of acceptance there, which seemed to be her entire ethos, like in saying, oh, no, I'm, I'm not a feminist. I don't believe in that. Oh, of course women should vote and have equal rights, but I'm not a feminist. I don't, know. I don't want you to get mad about it, uh, which is just an interesting thing to unpluck. <laughs> well, and I think there you, you will hear similar things today. Like, I feel like the idea of, of, uh, of people saying, oh, I'm not a feminist, but... And then having all of the same perspectives as, like, mainstream feminism, like, that still happens. Yes. Yes. 100%. I 100% for sure said that when I was in college. <laughs> like, oh, I yeah. remember same, saying Same, same, same. Same, same, same. We did not get into John Moisant, but he's another one that could be an episode on his own because there's some... There's a lot to unpack there, (laughs) like where his money came from and his life, which was involved with revolutions and all kinds of things before his untimely death. I feel like all of the people, it seems, in early aviation also have a whole other backstory Mm -hmm. of being sort of remarkable, which is probably what led them to embrace this sort of dangerous and completely new and untested area. Uh, There's like a a personality typing that you could probably do if you wanted to make a big grid about it. But yes, again, a great, great Halloween costume idea. That purple satin wool-lined jumpsuit. Yeah, nice and warm for cool weather Halloween, too. Oh, yeah. That's another thing that comes up that's funny uh, is the, the ways that people tried to help her make sure she was warm enough on her flights, particularly that English Channel flight, where they're like, she's wearing the jumpsuit, but she has two coats on top of it, and some of us stuff some newspapers in around her, and also, we put a water bottle in her lap, a hot water bottle, mm-hmm. because we don't know if she's going to be able to handle the cold weather up there. Because, um, again, imagine open cockpit. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> like, uh, no one could probably, without a little bit of help, handle that kind of temperature change. 
Uh, so, <laughs> so, but again, I hope my fingers are crossed, my fingers, toes, hair follicles, etc., uh, that we will see someone dressed as Harriet Quimby for Halloween. That is my wish this year. <laughs> so, uh, again, happy Friday, everybody. Hope uh, we've got good things on your plate for the weekend, whatever is on your plate for the weekend. I hope it's awesome. We'll be back with a classic episode tomorrow. New episodes Monday and then another new episode Wednesday. And you can get all of those wherever you get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 